Okay, let's read together. Luke 12, 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Lord, we pray that your word would shine forth with truth and clarity and bring conviction and sanctification in the lives of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the late uh, 1960s and all during the decade of the 1970s, there is a mighty move of God that actually started on the West Coast here in California. From what historians can gather, the earliest indication that God was stirring a revival was a work that started in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in around 1967. There was a storefront mission there in the Haight-Ashbury district that was made up of street workers. And these people went out to the, the those the hippies and the drug addicts and started sharing Christ and the gospel. And some people started to be converted and they gave up their drugs and they started getting high on Jesus. And then some of them actually made the trip from San Francisco down to Southern California. One of those hippies who has recently been converted was uh, Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie came down and providentially he met Chuck Smith who is pastoring a, a new church called Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, that had, I don't know, 25 or 30 people when Chuck first came there in 1965. And Lonnie was a genuine hippie, you know. He had the long hair, he had the beard, he, had, he was in bare feet, he had flowers in his hair, the bell-bottom jeans, the whole thing. And Chuck's wife, Kay, had recently gotten a burden for the salvation of these hippies. She would see them all over the place, and they just, it just broke her heart that they were lost, and she was praying and praying. And at first, Chuck didn't have any burden at all for him. He just thought those guys were just dirty old hippies. He, didn't, he had no time for them. But over time, God gave him a burden too. And when Lonnie met Chuck, Chuck invited him, because uh, Lonnie had been newly converted. He was full of the joy of the Lord and the zeal of the Holy Spirit. And so he started attending Calvary Chapel, and before long, Lonnie was ministering right alongside Chuck. And there is a period of time in the late 60s, around 1968-69, when things just exploded. Uh, historians say that there was a six-month period of time when the church went from about 200 to 2,000. And it was common for there to be monthly baptisms in the ocean. In fact, in 1971, Time Magazine did a cover story on the Jesus Movement, and they were showing Lonnie and Chuck baptizing people in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And at that time, there could be up to a thousand people being baptized in a single day in the ocean. And the church was just inc growing incredibly. Tens of thousands of these hippies and young people were being converted and becoming believers. In fact, today, there are several Calvary chapels around the United States that are megachurches. And almost all of them started from the 1970s. 
at that very same time, you had contemporary Christian music. You know, back then they just called it Jesus movement, Jesus music. But they had people like Keith Green, who were uh, being converted and being thrust into the music scene, and Love Song, and Children of the Day, and Larry no Norman, and Randy Stonehill. I don't know if you guys know any of these people at all. But <laughs> when, I was, uh, when Debbie and I were going to a church in Fresno, we had almost all of these people come to our church and do concerts. But so the, the, you had this new Jesus movement that was brand new, never been heard before, where they were taking their music and putting Jesus lyrics to it. And so everything was just, uh, there, there was a new move of God, a new revival. And it was common for people in those days to raise their hand with an index finger raised toward the sky. That meant one way, one way to Jesus. And they would call these people Jesus freaks or Jesus people. The high water mark of the whole movement was probably 1972 when in Dallas, Texas, they had a big Jesus festival that lasted an entire week. It was called Explo 72, and 80,000 people gathered for that festival. You should go on Google sometime and look at Google Images and just see the crowds of people. It is actually unbelievable. Um, Johnny Cash actually made an appearance and sang some gospel songs. Billy Graham was there preaching six times. It was put on Campus, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, actually put the whole thing on. And the movement kept on in its influence throughout the 70s and started to fade in the early 80s. But we still have evidence today of the ongoing work of the Spirit back in that, that time, about, what is that, 40, 45 years ago. Well, they called that the Jesus Movement. But actually, that was just one tiny little sliver of the real Jesus movement, which is what Jesus is talking about from this passage. The real Jesus movement is what Jesus Christ started by his death and resurrection and has been going on ever since and has been extending all throughout this world and will not stop until he comes back. We're going to see three things from our passage today. Number one, Jesus came into the world to start a movement. Number two, Jesus kindled this movement by his death. And then number three, Jesus promised that this movement would bring division. Those are the three thoughts, the three ideas that surface from our text today. So first of all, Jesus came into the world to start a movement. Notice in verse 49, he says that he came to start a fire. He said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. So here's one of those purpose statements where Jesus tells us why he came. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, in various other places of the Gospels, Jesus gave other purpose statements. Let me just share some of those statements with you. In Matthew 5.17, he said he came not to abolish but to fulfill the law and the prophets. In Matthew 20.28, 20, he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke 5.32, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save that which was lost. In John 9.39, he came that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. In John 6.38 and 39, he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And this is the will of him who sent him, that of all that he has given him, he would lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. 
In John 10.10, he came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. In John 12.46, he came that everyone who believes in him may not remain in darkness. In John 12.47, he came to save the world. In John 18.37, he came to bear witness to the truth. So do you see all of these different purpose statements point to who he is and why he came? to fulfill the law and the prophets, to give his life a ransom for many, to call sinners to repentance, to save the lost, to bring sight to those who cannot see, to do the will of the one who sent him, to bring abundant life, to save the world, and to bear witness to the truth. So here he says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Now we read that, at least I read that, and I scratch my head and think, what was he talking about? What do you mean? I, I've come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, Jesus doesn't explain here what he means. He doesn't tell us what he means by fire. Luke doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't interpret it. So we're left to ourselves and the Holy Spirit within us as teachers to try to figure out what is the correct interpretation of this fire? Because Jesus doesn't explain himself, and because Luke doesn't interpret that metaphor, different commentators have given different meanings to the meaning for fire. Some commentators say that he's talking about judgment. They say throughout the Old Testament, fire is usually the symbol for judgment. And what Jesus means is that he has come to judge the world. Other commentators have said, no, no, it's not judgment. The fire here represents persecutions, fiery persecutions, and the divisions that will result from those persecutions. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on for a minute. Is it true that Jesus Christ came into the world to judge the world? In John 3.17, he says, I did not come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. So he didn't come, according to his own words. John says he didn't come to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Is it true that the purpose of Jesus' coming into the world was to bring persecutions? Well, it's sort of a byproduct, but it wasn't really the, the real reason why he came into the world. It wasn't his... His real purpose to bring division, although that was a byproduct and that was a result of his coming into the world. And notice that he says here, and how I wish it were already kindled. Is it true that Jesus has this great desire in his heart that judgment would begin in the world? How I wish that judgment was coming upon the world. I mean, does that sound like our Lord's first coming? How I wish that persecutions would come to my people. <laughs> it just seems foreign to the rest of the New Testament. So that left me thinking of another alternative. Okay, if, if it's not talking about judgment, and if it's not talking about persecutions and division, then what could this fire represent? And I was pleasantly surprised because I came up with my own solution, and then I started checking other commentators, and I found one that I really respect. John Brown, a Scottish minister of the 19th century, and he agrees completely with what I came up with. So I thought, okay, at least some other good thinker <laughs> thinks the same way I do. And this is what I believe he's talking about. I believe he's saying, I came into the world to start a movement. 
I came into the world to establish the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is going to spread like fire spreads. It's going to start very small, and it's going to end up very big. It's going to not just influence a little corner of the world, but it's going to spread like yeast and dough to permeate and influence the entire world and all the different nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues of the world. Now, why do I believe that? Because in the very next chapter, Jesus gives two parables that teach this very truth. Look at Luke 13, 18. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So... Here he doesn't tell us this, but the mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds. The point he's making is that something very, very tiny is going to grow into something really big, so even birds can come and make nests in it. The kingdom of God is going to start with one person, the king, who comes into the world. And it's going to grow to millions and millions and millions of people around the world. And then the next parable, again he said to them, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now you women who have ever made bread, you put yeast into that dough, and it causes that, that dough to, to rise, doesn't it? It expands because the yeast is working in it and permeating and influencing that entire lump of dough. Well, that's what the kingdom of God's going to be like. It's going to be injected into the world through the work of Jesus Christ, and then it's going to start permeating the world and influencing culture and society all throughout the world. And then Jesus says in verse 29, And they're going to come from east and west and from north and south and will enter, I'm sorry, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God is going to be made up of not just Jews in Palestine, but from people from north, south, east and west. What's that talking about? Every point of the globe, every, every direction. They're coming from every direction, streaming into the kingdom of God. In other words, you're going to have a huge kingdom. And Gentiles from every country are coming into that kingdom. So in chapter 13, I think he expands on the idea that he lays out for us here in chapter 12, that he's come to cast fire, a wildfire, it's going to spread throughout the world and is going to have a major influence in every nation of the world before he comes back. And I think that's what we find in the book of Acts. Do you remember Jesus' promise to his disciples in Acts 1.8? He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's what happened in the book of Acts. They start in Jerusalem. And actually, they probably stayed in Jerusalem too long. They stayed for several years. But eventually, God boots them out. <laughs> Philip goes over to Samaria. The Samaritans are converted. Then he sends him down to a desert road where he preaches the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch who, who brings the gospel to Africa. Then Peter goes over to Caesarea, where uh, Cornelius and his household are converted. Now Gentiles are entering the kingdom. Then later Paul is sent 
to Asia Minor, and he plants churches in every major city of that entire region. The gospel finally ends up in Rome. And so the remotest part of the earth to them was Rome, if they lived in Jerusalem. Jesus' promises came true to the remotest part of the world. And from Rome, the gospel has gone forth even from there. It entered Europe, Spain, went eventually to the British Isles. The Britons took the gospel across the Atlantic Ocean to the American colonies in the 1600s and the 1700s. And then it was passed down from person to person, from generation to generation, until you and I receive the gospel today. Think about this idea. Jesus came to cast fire upon the earth. You and I are like torches. Jesus came as the initial torch. And he set his 12 apostles on fire. A fire grows by burning, doesn't it? It comes into contact with something that's dry, so like stubble, and by coming in contact with it, it gets lit on fire, and now that piece of ground is able to light something else on fire, and what he's saying is that all of us are like fire bearers. When we come into contact with someone who doesn't have the fire of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, we can bring the gospel to them, and the Holy Spirit, it's like we're, the gospel's like a match. We're bringing a match to that person, and when the Holy Spirit strikes it, Fire erupts within the heart of that sinner, and they've been born again. And so the gospel is going to spread from one Christian to another Christian to another Christian like fire spreads and just keeps on spreading. So Jesus came to start a fire, a gospel fire, a kingdom fire. And notice that he longed for that gospel fire to be kindled. He says in verse, chapter 12, verse 49, I've come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you notice the exclamation mark at the end of that verse? Also at the end of verse 50, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Two exclamation marks. And these verses here, there's strong emotion going on in Jesus' heart as he's explaining what's happening. How I wish this fire, this movement, this spreading kingdom had already been kindled. That's the reason I came into the world. To start this kingdom fire, this spreading movement throughout the world and how I wish it was already started. But that brings us to our second point. Jesus kindled this movement by his death. Because look at verse 50. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now notice that he's using metaphors here. He used the metaphor of fire in verse 49. Now he's going to use the metaphor of baptism in verse 50. And these are metaphors. You're not to be taken literally. Jesus wasn't talking about water baptism. Can you tell me why? He'd already been water baptized. So this isn't water baptism he's talking about. This is another kind of baptism. The word baptism, is in the Greek it's baptizo, and instead of trans, translating that word into an English word, they just simply transliterated the word, meaning they gave us an English word that sounds like the original. So baptism sounds, sounds like baptizo, but it doesn't translate it. 
A translation of baptizo would be to immerse or to submerge. And Jesus is saying, but I have an immersion to undergo. I must be submerged. Now what do you suppose he's talking about? Submerged under what? He's talking about his suffering. He's talking about being immersed and submerged under the wrath of Almighty God to atone for our sin so that this movement, this spreading gospel kingdom fire can spread throughout the world. Now how do we know that? Let me show you from Mark chapter 10. Go over to Mark 10, 38. Okay, I'll pick it up in verse 37. James and John said to Jesus, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what is Jesus' link with baptism here in verse 38? Drinking the cup. Drinking the cup is linked with this baptism that Jesus is describing. Now, what did Jesus mean by drinking the cup? Well, look over at um, Matthew 26, verse 39. It says, He went a little beyond them, and fell on his face, and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now what did he mean when he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass? Yeah, he's talking about the cup of his atoning suffering, his, the work that he would perform at the cross, where he would be made sin, so that we would be made righteous. Where he would take God's wrath upon himself so that we would be freed from the wrath of God. So, we know that the baptism that he's talking about is linked to the cup of his atoning work, his, his sufferings that he must drink in order for us to be free. So here he's talking about being submerged under the wrath of God. And, you know, we really can't understand this. We really can't understand the depth of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we think, oh yeah, that was horrible suffering for him to be beaten and scourged by the Romans and for his back to become like hamburger. And then to be nailed up to a cross, his hands and his feet and a soldier just thrust a spear through his side. That must be horrible physical agony, right? But I, I believe that was just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the the soul sufferings of Jesus. Just think about it. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And they have had this wonderful, sweet fellowship and love relationship from all eternity. But on the cross, that relationship between them was temporarily broken. Fellowship was, was broken at the cross. That's why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was this turning away of the Father from His Son because the Son was becoming sin. 
Now the Bible says of the Father that his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Well, our evil was hurled on the Son of God. He was bearing in his own body on the cross. The Father had to look away. He was too pure to look at his Son. And so there was this disruption of fellowship between the members of the Godhead. Can you imagine? And, and Jesus is he's, he's feeling alone. He's feeling forsaken. He's feeling like his father's gone. And this has never happened for all eternity. There's been a cleavage, a break. And the horrors and the evils of our sin are being hurled and heaped upon him. And he's bearing them in his own body on the cross. So there's unimaginable soul anguish in addition to the physical agony that he bore. And I think that's why he says in the second part of verse 50, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. But I have a baptism to undergo. Notice the word but. He says, I've come to cast fire on the earth, and I wish it were already kindled, but... And that word but tells us that contrast is coming, doesn't it? But it's not going to start until something else happens first. What's the something else that has to happen before the fire is kindled? The baptism of his sufferings has to happen. This spreading kingdom is not going to start until Jesus dies for sin, rises again from the dead, ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit down upon the infant church, and then the fire is going to spread like wildfire from one person to another person to another person throughout the world. Now, think about this word distress. I have a baptism to undergo, but how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus was distressed distressed there was stress there was pressure constantly on Jesus Christ mental pressure soul pressure emotional pressure constantly weighing on our Savior throughout his life that's why in Luke 22 Verse 44, it says, being in agony, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now this word distress, that Greek word is translated suffer in Luke 4.38. It's translated gripped in Luke 8.37. It's translated Crowding in 845. These are all verses out of Luke. It's translated hemming in Luke 19.43. And it's translated holding in Luke 22.63. So it has the idea of suffering, gripping, crowding, hemming, and holding. In other words, the thought of the cross coming up was gripping him and holding him and pushing him and pressuring him and straining at him so that Jesus' life, I believe, was a constant looking forward to what he knew was coming. There was probably never a waking moment of our Lord's life where he could just forget about what was coming. He knew it was coming. He predicted it. 
over and over and over. He told his disciples what was going to happen. He knew every detail. He could say, the Romans are going to crucify me, the Jews are going to deliver me up. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. He would say that over and over and over. So he was distressed. I don't know, if you, have you ever thought about Jesus being distressed? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's interesting, you never read about Jesus in the Bible laughing. But you do read about him weeping. Now that's not to say he didn't laugh, he probably did. But you never read about him laughing in the Bible. He was a man of, he was carrying this huge weight. <laughs> the weight of the sin of humanity was upon the, the shoulders of the Son of God, leading him to that cross, that tree where he would bear it in full. It would be sort of like if you knew that on June 17th, 2016, one year from now, at exactly 3.02 p.m., your house is going to be broken into, people are going to carry you away, they're going to torture you until you die a slow, agonizing death. Okay, so I've got one year and three or four days to look forward to this. And I know it's going to happen. It, it, it has to happen. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be on your mind all the time, wouldn't it? It's like, what's going on with Jesus? It's coming. It's coming. And, and he didn't look forward to it. On, on the one hand, he looked forward to it because he knew he was doing the will of God. And he knew he was saving sinners. But on the other hand, he said, Father, if there's any other way, remove the cup. In his humanity, he shrunk from it. Shrank away. So it was distressing to Jesus. Jesus came into the world to kindle a fire. And he kindled that fire by his death. And then the third point he makes here is that he promised that this movement would bring division. Look at 51 to 53. He says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. Sometimes you hear people say that the reason Jesus came into the world was to unite humanity into a single universal brotherhood of man. You ever heard anything like that? It's especially prevalent around Christmas time. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. New Age movement and the crazy cults like to go this direction. The, per the reason Jesus came into the world was just to unite everybody together so everybody's at peace. That's foolishness. Jesus tells us he didn't do that. This isn't the ultimate purpose of his coming, but the result of his coming is that he's going to bring division. In Matthew's Gospel, the parallel passage says he's going to bring a sword. Not peace, but a sword. Division. And he says, from now on, you're going to have families where people should have the strongest possible ties. They're going to be split. You'll have five people in a family. Three of them will hold together. The other two will be apart. You'll have fathers against sons, sons against fathers, mothers against daughters, daughters against mothers, in-laws against each other. Now, what's he talking about here? He's saying that in a family, three will become followers of Jesus and two won't. Or two will become followers of Christ and three won't. And there's going to be a splitting apart. There must be. Because the people that don't follow Christ are going to continue in their life of sin. And then you've got 
others that are repenting of sin. You've got some that are given over to worldliness and others that are shunning and forsaking worldliness. And their hearts are divided, their interests are divided, their loyalties are divided. Everything's divided now. And so Jesus says, hey, I've come to split families, bring a sword, bring division. And what a blessing it is when every member of a family is a follower of Jesus and they have that in common. But all too often, that's not the way things go. You have some that are and some that are not. And so Jesus came to bring division, he says. And I find it rather interesting that many parents would rather their child was a drunkard or sexually immoral rather than that he would be an all-out follower of Jesus Christ. Because they just think that is just too crazy. It's a scandal to the family to be all out for Christ. They say, well, it's fine to be religious. It's fine to be spiritual. It's okay to join a church and go through your ceremonies, but just don't become a religious fanatic. Now, what do people mean when they say, just don't become a religious fanatic? <laughs> yeah. They mean, don't take your faith seriously. Don't obey Christ. Don't obey the Word of God. Don't order your life by what God has said. But you know what Jesus said? The one who hears his words and doesn't act according to them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And when the storms come, that house is going to be swept away in the flood. He's talking about judgment. And if you're hearing the word and you don't act on the word, your house, your life is going to be swept away on judgment day. But he says, he who hears my words and acts upon them is a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when those floods come, his house stands. So yeah, be spiritual. Join a church. Do whatever you want. Just don't get too serious about it. Folks, we need to be serious about it. This is the one thing in life we need to be serious about. We need to be serious about it. The Apostle Paul says over in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, he's talking about Ishmael and Isaac. He says, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. That's what Jesus is talking about. You've got part of the members in a family who are born of the flesh, part are born of the Spirit. There's going to be this backlash that those who are born of the Spirit are going to have to absorb from those who have not been born of the Spirit. Because they're going to think that you're foolish, you're stupid, you're an idiot for giving your life away because they just don't have eyes to see the glory of Christ. And so to them, it seems like a ridiculous, stupid thing to give your life up for this crucified Jew. Uh, over in 1 John 3.13, John says, My brethren, don't marvel if the world hates you. And we tend to marvel. <laughs> if we have any kind of backlash at all from the world, we're surprised. But we, he tells us not to be surprised. We ought to expect that there's going to be some repercussions if you take the Word of God seriously and try to live by it. Um, look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 3, he says, For the time already passed, 
is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You hear what he's saying? You used to live this old life of partying, uh, drunkenness, sensuality, carousings, idolatries, and the people that you used to run around with, they're surprised that you don't do that anymore. And now because you don't follow them into those same things, they malign you. They slander you. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, here's the principle. Jesus came to bring division. We have to be willing to accept the repercussions of following him. And some of them are unpleasant. They're uncomfortable. In some countries of the world, it's much more severe than it is here, of course. But even in our country, you will ex you'll face some negative consequences of following Jesus if you take the Word of God seriously. You may be called names. You may be maligned. You could even be disowned in some severe cases. But remember Jesus' disciples? It said they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were happy that God had counted them worthy to take that shame uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, let me wind up giving you four different ways that we can apply this passage. These are four ways that appeared to me as I was working my way through it. Number one, we should long for the advancement of Jesus' kingdom. Now, why do I say that? Because Jesus longed for it. He said, how I wish it were already kindled. Do you hear his heart? I want my kingdom to start like fire and spread through the world. I want this movement to extend in every direction. There's a passion in Jesus' heart for his kingdom. Now, shouldn't the disciple have the same passions that his master has? If Jesus is passionate about his kingdom, shouldn't his disciples be passionate for his kingdom? So are you passionate about the advancement and the spreading of the kingdom of Christ in the world? Is that one of your passions? If it's not, we should pray that God would give us a greater passion for his kingdom in this world. And not just for his kingdom here in Rancho Cordova or Sacramento, but his kingdom everywhere throughout the world. We should be passionate about world mission, wanting to see the gospel come to unreached tribes and tongues and peoples in India and Africa and South America, wherever they might be found, and rejoice whenever we find people penetrating an unreached people group. So passion for the kingdom. Number two, we ought to praise God for the cross. Are you part of the movement of Jesus? If you are, it's because of the cross. Right? He said, how I wish I've already kindled that fire on the earth, but I have to undergo a baptism first. The cross had to precede this movement, this fire. So if you have the fire of the Spirit within your soul today, <clears throat> 
you should thank God for the cross of Jesus Christ because that's why you have that fire. The Apostle Paul says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul gloried in. That's what we should glory in. Third, patiently endure suffering for His sake. If you find yourself divided from loved ones, family members, because you don't share the same passion for Jesus, we need to patiently endure the suffering and the pain that comes along with that as part of what it means to follow Jesus. Patiently, willingly, and even joyfully. And then finally, take the fire that the Holy Spirit has put in your soul and bring it to people who don't have fire in their hearts and by God's grace light a fire in their soul. Now ultimately we can't light a fire in anybody. Don't you wish you could just kind of do that? Walk around to people you love and just say, okay, you. <laughs> God alone has the prerogative and the power and the ability to light the fire in souls. But we do have fire. If you've been born again by the Spirit, there's the fire of the Spirit inside of your heart. And by you making contact with lost people, the Spirit of God can then generate fire within that other person's soul. And that's why I think it's so valuable what we've started to do on Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings, especially as a church, just going out into the harvest, talking to people, sharing the stories of hope, going back again and again until someone comes to faith and then starting a Bible study in their home, making disciples out of them. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. That's simply spreading His kingdom. That's having a passion for this fire to spread through the world. And so I want to challenge you, if you're not involved with us on Wednesday night or Saturday morning, I want to challenge you this morning to get involved. Start coming along. It's going to mean a dedication of time, which all of us have a limited amount of. But it's going to show your seriousness to the cause of Christ and His movement, His glory in the earth. So I want to, I want to ask you to give up some of your time, dedicate it for the spreading and advancement of Jesus' kingdom, and let's together, kind of like the story I read about Chuck Wood in San Antonio, Texas, let's together see what the Lord can do through this small band of disciples here in Rancho Cordova to see his gospel spread and churches planted in this area. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we love you when we think of what you have done for us, Lord. Anything that we would ever do for you just pales into insignificance. When we think of that baptism of suffering and how distressed you were Lord that's something that I don't really think about much that you were distressed for years you walked this earth under this mental and emotional and soul pressure of what lay ahead of you that cup of wrath that you must drink if we would ever be free from sin oh Lord how we praise you for kindling this fire in the earth the fire of your kingdom and how we have seen it spread from Jerusalem to Samaria to Rome, to every quarter of the world, and it's still spreading and it's still penetrating into unreached people groups today. 
Lord, would you make us a part of that movement that we would have a part to play? The Lord, you'd give us the great privilege and joy of seeing the fame of our Savior extend even here in Sacramento. And Lord, may our desire for your glory extend not just to our own immediate surroundings, but to everywhere throughout this world. So Lord, work these truths in our heart, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.